CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for June 2014. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book for this June is the fifth book in our year-long Sundering series, The Sentinel by Troy Denning, who will be joining us later in the episode. Man, when this series is over, it's going to feel like it's our own Sundering when we no longer have these books. (laughs) (laughs) And with us today, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hello, hi, hey! (laughs) So, speaking about the rest of the series, over the next two months, we'll be reading The Herald by Ed Greenwood with the intent of finishing the book for Gen Con in August and recording the book club actually in person. This allows us to finish The Sundering with a bit of a bang, but also compensate for the fact that Jeff's going to be in England for most of the month of July and won't be able to record much. It's not an officially sanctioned event or anything. We're just going to find some time while there, get together, and do it. Uh, We haven't figured out if we'll also do an interview with the author at Gen Con or wait until we get back. But that doesn't mean that you can't join us. If you're going to be at Gen Con and want to get in on the book club for The Herald, let us know. Send an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Uh, and we can either discuss your thoughts on the episode, or if there, if you happen to be at Gen Con in August, you could uh, maybe we'll let you know where we're going to be, and you can join us for the recording. All right, so we have already t- discussed the first half. Oh. Now we've read the second half, wherein Jeff is right about everything. <laughs> right? I said he. W- I said that that. Uh, that Malik was not a chosen of Merkel, but he was actually still f- following Sirik, and I was right. Yes. Which also was strange at one point, because he does mention to, to the others that he has powers of detecting lies, which doesn't really fall into Merkel's camp. No, but then the, he says, then they say to him that he's a chosen, they keep saying to him that he's a chosen of Merkel. It's like, well, I was a bit confused for that part. But But he kind of sort of indicated that that all chosen have the ability to detect lies and what you don't. Ooh, that's weird. You know? And he just sort of tossed it off like that. He's a a very believable liar. He's the seraph of lies. Yeah. He's a jerk. Except for when he doesn't lie. Right, Tracy? I don't know what you're talking about. Like when he, like when he says things about, uh, Arietta not being a chosen of Cyamorph, but then later on becoming one. That wasn't a lie, was it? <laughs> I, I, I sense a little animosity here. <laughs> no animosity. I, I'm just rubbing it in your face. <laughs> what Eric doesn't know is that we've already recorded the interview with the author. And oh. Tracy and I had a conversation about, well, was she actually chosen the whole time and Malik was lying? Because, you know, that's what he does. That's... Or was she not chosen and actually became chosen in that moment? Uh-huh. Uh, and the author agreed with me that his intent anyway was that she was not chosen and became chosen in that moment. 
Although uh, I do have to say, after Tracy floated the idea that she was actually chosen all along and Malik was lying, is probably a more interesting direction for that story to go. Right. After yeah. you said that, I kind of wanted that to be true. Because, I mean, it fits into to Malik lies about everything. Uh, and it totally makes that a much more interesting sort of arc. You know, yeah. the crisis of faith and, and getting through that and all that. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, the other problem is the author also told us that uh, Ariadne was supposed to be, at the beginning, kind of the spoiled rich girl. But I never got that at all from the stuff no. that happened. She 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 sounds she she sounded like a very dutiful girl that believed with the people and, and taking care of. She didn't sound like spoiled at all. So, yeah, it, it almost I, it almost feels more like she was supposed to be a spoiled rich girl. You know, that's what her parents wanted her to be. That's what everybody like, sort of expected from her. But she never quite allowed herself to fit that mold. Like she was never actually the spoiled rich girl, but she was supposed to be. Yeah, because yeah, because things like. Uh, she was willing to give up one of her six trunks to allow her servant to come along in the ship, even though she wasn't actually going to be in the ship. But, like, to me, a spoiled person would be like, well, you can find your own way. Right. (laughs) Like, Uh, why would I give up my stuff? Well, and and I think that's, but that's also, like, essential to who she is, too, right? I mean, that's part of who she is. She's always looking out for and thinking about other people. Right. I got the, you know, I would argue that she wasn't a spoiled rich girl at the beginning by virtue of the fact that she she's one of those people who, you know, in sort of archetypical fashion, right, goes out, um, goes out and, you know, and, and slums it, so to speak, right? Right. You know, like the the story, of the, the mythical story of the princess who dresses up like a commoner to go out and see what what life is like for everybody. It's like she does that on a regular basis to the point that she has this whole persona of this bard that goes out to taverns and performs. Now, maybe the, he misspoke because, you know, he wasn't necessarily prepared for that that question. And maybe what he really meant was that she was a little naive and also uh, too trusting of what people around her were telling her was the right thing to do. So she wanted to do the right thing, but it was like the right thing that fairy tales tell you, not the right thing that reality uh, has. Yeah, and, that, and that'd be yeah. a fair assessment. I mean, that, I think that'd be a fair description of her. Yeah. She, she, she basically, she was more... What did I mean? Spoil. She was more cloistered, maybe that was the right term, or sheltered. sheltered yeah. Right. Where she never really. She yes, she does experience life through her bard personality, but she's that's more of a adventurous, fanciful life than a true life that actually was. So. Yeah, and I did. I, I read a few reviews of the book from other people too. And I think one of the common themes was that a lot of the characters still felt very much like they were archetypes rather than more fleshed out characters, which mm-hmm. is common in fantasy, but I felt uh, felt really strongly in this book. Yeah, I guess, I'd, and, I, and I don't disagree. I don't know that I feel like I went through this whole book and felt a really strong connection to any of the characters. Mm. You know? Um Cleef is sort of the stalwart, you know, he, he goes through his arc, right? He changes, which is um, a nice thing to see because in, in, in some fantasy characters uh, in, in some novels seem to never change, right? Uh, so he changes. He has his crisis of faith and, and, right. uh, and all that. But, but I never really felt like because of who he is yes. and the chosen that he is and all that, right? Uh, he's not exactly the warm person that you relate to. 
you know? And right. so I don't know who my, who I was supposed to relate to in this book. Uh, and it may say something horrible about me, but the person I seemed to understand the most as a character, as a person was Malik. Right. I, I felt like we got more of his psyche, his internal monologue and some of his, uh, his, you know, who he is as a person sort of, uh, look more than the others. I mean, we got some of that from Arietta as well, but yeah. that wasn't um, particularly engaging to me, I guess. Yeah, well, and like, for me, Arietta just seemed to be a whole mess of contradictions because she, to me, she often seemed unsure of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But yet, I know that she, like from the story, I know that she went out and sang, like snuck out and sang at taverns, and that takes a certain amount of confidence or intestinal fortitude mm-hmm. to do. So I was like, man, I wish I knew that character. Mm-hmm. Well, I got this, uh, I got the same thing from, uh, Joel. Right. Right. Joel. Uh, the, so I listened to the book. I listened to the audio book as I, as I tend to do these days. Uh, and I listened to it twice. Um, once, you know, broken up into two parts, like we, like we do for the, for the, for the book club. And then once completely through like a, a few days before we did the interview. Um, and the first time through, I felt very little connection to Joelle. She didn't seem particularly interesting to me or whatever. Uh, and then I listened to it a second time. I was like, oh, there's a bunch of backstory stuff there that I didn't even notice the first time. Like I must've been, you know, watching the road or something while I was listening, you know, or listening to my kids scream or something. Right? I missed that little bit there that actually made her kind of an interesting character. Right. You, know, you get a little hint that she was a thief, um, you know, an urban sort of thief. Um, she wasn't a redhead. That came when she became chosen. She became a redhead. She had, you know, she originally had dark hair and whatever, um, you know, and there was this whole sort of backstory about about her becoming a thief and then uh, her being a thief and then becoming a chosen of Sune and that and how that affected her outlook that I thought was way more interesting and made her a more interesting character. Right. Oh. I'll have to reread the book because I missed that too. See, yeah, it really just sort of happened and it was yeah. discussed in one one brief moment. But I kind of wish I feel like she had potential to be a really interesting character. You know, she she early on she was she was the lead of this whole thing, right? She was the leader yeah. of the party, not not the main character. She yeah. was the leader of the party, and I fe- feel like there was a, um, some interesting. You know, because of her confidence and, and her strength as a woman and, and her strength of her convictions and all these kinds of things, I feel like she had some real interesting potential. Um, you know, and, but of course, now we're never going to get that because she dies. Well, she dies, but this, this, this is D&D. You, people can come back. But, love is dead. Yes. No more love. <laughs> they can be reborn. And they yes. can have that nice scene again. <laughs> but, but yeah, no. Uh, for, for basically the fact that she's died, yeah, I would have. In a way, it would have been nice to see a, a more obvious story for her, so that we can know a bit more about her, so we can really be more attached to to, to, to her. So that way, yeah. when she did die, it had more. Attachment to it. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't have much of an arc, right? I mean, she, at the beginning yeah. of the book, she wants to accomplish one thing, and at the end of the book, she wants to accomplish the exact same thing, and nothing has changed, right? Yeah. Well, all... I don't think that's true. Oh yeah. Well, because so at the beginning of the book, she doesn't. She's the uh, what was it? Thief of Hearts or something? Yeah. Uh, she, 
she's very much into charming, seducing, whatever, people to get her way. But then she actually falls in love a bit during it, I think. Oh, see, I I think that she my, – my take on her was that she's the kind of person who is just free to love everybody constantly. But there was a uh, – there was one part where uh, – I think she was talking about Cleef and she was talking about how she actually had started – she was a uh, – it was – she remarks that she started having feelings for him. Not necessarily remarks out loud, but like it's part of her thought process. Yeah. And so like that was a big thing that she actually had thoughts uh, – feelings for him. Which is also, which is also, I mean, that you're right, that, and that's interesting, um, because, like, because she's the kind of person who just loves everybody. I never really felt like her love was very sincere, right? And and, and yeah, so I think what the, what the author is trying to do there, and what the story is trying to do there, is establish that you know this time there is a sincere love, right? And 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 uh, Troy does that. Uh, a number of times throughout the book, like we don't really get that Arietta commands anyone until she becomes, I think, chosen, and then the the, the words start changing and how it's described. <laughs> Which was the part of the reason I thought that maybe you could be right, but I didn't want to admit it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't pick up on that language change, but I think that's sometimes easier and sometimes more difficult when you're doing the audio. Although you did the audio book this time as well, too, didn't you? Yeah, but different people pick up on different things. That's like, true. I didn't pick up on the thief thing either. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I win! Like, I knew she was... I, I guess I kind of knew, but I didn't catch that there was, like, a big backstory or, like, a small but big Well, I mean, backstory. yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, it, it's... It's a it like it's mentioned is very small, but it, it alludes to a whole thing, you know, a yeah. whole background for her that I then imagined and it made her a much more fleshed out character in my mind. You know, but right. I, I mean, I did most of that on my own, right? But yeah, I had that little thing that spurred me to do that. Right. So maybe that could spurn a, a prequel book about uh, Joel, the Thief of Hearts. I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, after the Sundering's over, there won't be much going back to pre pre Sundering uh, Forgotten yeah. Realms. I suspect that too. <laughs> I think they well, want to move on and, and get to the new yes. world. And... Uh, but yeah. Uh... So we've been very yeah. down on the book so far. <laughs> well, I didn't think it was a bad book. I enjoyed it. No. no. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, the the fact that... the what What do you guys think of the relationship between Arietta and Joel that got put in in the second half? Uh, none of the relationship stuff felt strong to me. Yeah. Like, I didn't feel like any of the... I wasn't cheering for any of those relationships. Yeah. Although, although it kind of worked because um, in the end, Joel... Because the whole point of the relationships was Joel was trying to kind of force these relationships. Yeah. In order to have somebody be in love with her, so she could complete her ritual, yeah, um, that kind of works, of course, because a forced relationship oftentimes doesn't feel like a strong connection, right? Um, and so, then the twist at the end, where she's the one who who sacrificed, sacrificed and not, and not the others, that actually kind of worked, yeah. Um, but I didn't feel like I had a real strong emotional tie to any of the relationships. Yeah. I had a feeling that 
it wasn't put in just to be uh, alluring or titillating, but it had it still had that little bit of a feel to me. <laughs> the putting just putting in like moving from one uh, triangle to to another and having it be a, a lesbian, a same sex triangle, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, uh, particularly that, where there was never any sort of, and I know part of that could be like discovery, but I think in order to do that sort of uh, reveal of discovery, uh, you need more pages mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. talking about that aspect of it and thinking through it and stuff like that. And we get a little bit of it, but I don't think we get enough, uh, particularly given that the person that she falls in love with is someone, or she starts developing these feelings for it, is someone who manipulates those feelings. It kind of felt a little off to me that way. Or if we had Arietta earlier saying that, you know, yeah, she yeah, was that's into pretty, women. Yeah, well, that's what I felt throughout the whole series of for all the relationships that they, these relationships could be interesting if they were more developed and had more stuff to it. Right now, we're just getting teases and stuff like that, and they feel yes, force and all that, and you're like, okay. Well, and and some of it goes. I mean, it's just Joelle going through. You know, she's going to test the waters with every single yep. person she meets to see if that's the one that she can then sacrifice that's later nice. in her ritual, right? Uh, it's, it's really al- it's almost a horrible, evil thing that she's doing, right? Yes. I mean, no, I, it's like. I, I'm just going to chew them up and spit them out. And if that's not the one, I'll move on to the next one and chew them up and spit them out. And if, you know, guy, girl, whatever, right? It's, it's sort of free yeah. love and, and all that. But on the other hand, it's also like really horrible. And, and, you know, that's part of why I never really cheered. And I never felt like that, um, that relationship was going anywhere. I never really felt like it ever was going to go anywhere, yeah. that, it wa- that, that it was, you know, yeah. developing into a thing other than it was just showing Joelle trying yet another person, yeah. um, you know. And so, uh, yeah, th- it felt – it didn't feel like it was put in – to me, it didn't feel like it was put in there to be titillating. It, it almost felt to me like it was put in there simply to make a political point, you know. And then after talking to the author, what people will hear in a moment, um, I, I got that impression even more, right? I think it was during the interview he actually described himself as a flaming liberal, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. But the thing is the titillating part was actually also part – was mostly – it wasn't necessarily the way I exactly felt about it. But it was how other people have who have reviewed the book felt about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it has different reactions to different people. But, yeah, yeah. so part of that is, like, uh, there are parts of the book I do like. Like, the part where uh, Cleef kind of gets put into the background because he's way too tired to do anything. And so it's mostly the two women mm-hmm. uh, doing everything and, and fighting off uh, some level of challenge and, and things like that. But there are other parts where, in theory, I should totally like this part. But I think the combination was just wrong. Like, for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like, I'm totally okay with the same-sex relationship in the book. But because it was uh, that particular one where one of the people is known to constantly <laughs> seduce or, mm-hmm. or charm people, it just felt wrong to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, I would have loved, one, uh, loved a novel where uh, that sort of thing came about uh, much more organically and sure. and naturally. Yeah. It, it felt more contrived than being organic and natural. Although it does make the point, I mean, uh, and I know we've talked about this um, for years now, Tracy, uh, you know, the, the whole um, Ed Greenwood statement about how in his vision of the realms, not only is there gender equality, but, you know, there's no sort of stigma about um, sexuality, right? So people are jumping into bed with whoever. 
right. uh, all the time. Uh, and so it does sort of play into that it, that vision of the realms that, of course, you know, you're looking for somebody to be in love with you. That person, that person, male, female, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, it builds to that larger world, except that you don't see that in most of the rest of the books in that world, right? So, right. Although uh, Aaron's books have the chapbooks. Chapbooks are everywhere. Yes. In the realms. <laughs> that you're going to write, right? Yes. <laughs> We're going to write some chapbooks. It's going to be fun. We're going to pitch that to Watsi for uh, upcoming magazine content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forgotten Realms chapbooks. Uh, for a while on Twitter, I was doing uh, As the Cauldron Bubbles. Yes. Ah. <laughs> So, the, so this would be what for the Dragon Magazine After Dark? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so yeah. So I think that's like one of the big things, and also talking about the gender equality in the in the realms. I'm still surprised by it, in, in this throughout the Sundering series, that we mm-hmm. don't get a lot of it. No. Uh, and, and, like and, even the guards. Why? Like what? I I don't understand why the guards weren't mixed gender unless there's something specific about that city that i didn't know about sure we'll have to uh when we talk to ed about yeah. for, about the herald we'll have to push him on that question a little bit yeah so i mean and ultimately it's not i mean ed's vision of the realms and the actual realms are not necessarily the same thing too right because he doesn't own them yeah and so. also and <laughs> and having talked to troy I, I i wonder if part of the the thing that happens is that some of the authors are trying to deal with issues of sexism, so they feel like they have to have it in the book in order to be something that you fight against. Like, Because yeah. at the end of the day, Arietta is... She's young at the beginning, but she does become a good leader and somebody who's willing to sacrifice for her people mm-hmm. and all those things. Uh, so she, sub- she subverts it in a way. And like that whole area where Arietta and Joel are fighting off everything and Cleef's kind of incapacitated. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that's subverting it. But why do we even have to subvert it if it's a gender equal place? Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I think his argument would be based off of this. I think this is off the air conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think his, his the argument would be um, because the real world is not a gender equal place, yeah. right? So he, yeah, but you want is- it, you want it to mirror a little bit of the real world so you can show that you so you can have that moral lesson in there. See, but I don't think we have to have that. Is is my argument? Yeah, no. I think I, I you think, would understand. I think people would see more the uh, the value, the tilt that's in our world, if they saw a world that where the tilt wasn't there. Sure, I think that that is a fair assessment as well. Mm. Cool. So, so I ended discussion. We've <laughs> we've been very very down. Um, I don't feel like this was a bad book. I, I want to be clear with, to that, with that to people. It just um, it just didn't grab me and excite me um, like I kind of wanted it to. Yeah. You know, you know. So it wasn't what? bad. It was just it was sort of a neutral book, I guess. Yeah. For, in my in my sundering list, it fits somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But yeah. one thing I do that enjoy about the book in regards to those is that you're seeing the effects of the sundering. A lot in this book. Yeah, and, and it deals a lot with the gods, which is something that I'm always interested yeah. in in the realms, is the meddling gods, because that's part of what makes the realms cool, is that there's yeah. tons of gods that, and they meddle. And he gets into gods that are relatively um, minor or, or, you know, 
they're not he 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 gets into some obscure gods that I wasn't even that familiar with. You know, sure the the main guy uh, is a is a worshiper of Helm, and Joel is a chosen of Sunni, and um, Malik is a, is a is a chosen of Syric, right? Uh, but Siamorph is one that I knew, but you know, never really used very much. Luthic, um, I've never used uh, or would have thought of. I, you know, I'd have to look up Luthic. Uh, Grumbar, I'm vaguely familiar with, but only because I've used him with a PC that I've run. Yeah. Uh, you know, but there's a, a lot of little uh, gods that I think most people wouldn't have any idea who they are and might have to go look them up. So it's not like these are gods that were more prominent during earlier days of D&D? No, not that, I, not that I'm familiar with. No, I think, okay. I think he liked picking some, more, some of the more obscure ones and using oh. them. Yeah, but I was also talking about the environment where we have earth moths crashing and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That happens, which it's like, okay, they're seeing that the environment is completely changing now, because of this. We saw the earth moth starting to crash back in the adversary, didn't we? Wasn't that a, wasn't that a thing that along the Sword Coast the Earth yeah. Moths were crashing and somebody was saying yeah. that it was powerful wizards bringing them down to disrupt trade routes or whatever? Yes, or yes. it was something like that. Yes, yeah. Earth Moths were definitely mentioned. I don't remember. Like I know it was part of uh, somebody. I forget which character it was. Uh, seeing the disparate reports and trying yeah. to and pulling it together into a, it was it was our fa- fallen uh, Harper, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. 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 No, and. and so yeah, uh, so we got Earthmost crashing, and and the Underchasm is filled. Yes. You know, so in the last what two books, we've taken the ocean levels down to normal, down to, or up to to normal levels, and filled in the giant chasm that was the explanation for the the water level dropping anyway. Right, that was sort of the story: is that the water level dropped because this massive chasm opened up, and all the water sort of dumped in. Um, so we've. We've solved those two issues, although I don't know how, I don't know how you do it in that order. <laughs> if you raise the water levels, but the giant chasm is still there that all the water fell in, doesn't it just keep falling into that giant chasm? Isn't that how, you know, physics and geography work? Yeah, well, that's what physics and all, but we're talking about the <laughs> here, right? Eh? <laughs> that's just their physics. And maybe, he, maybe that's what he was trying to sort of get at, because he talked about uh, Shantea dropped a bunch of earth moats in a certain area to stop it from flooding um, so that, you know, presumably so that the farmers could, could survive, right? Yeah. But maybe that was strategic as well. You know, we stopped some flooding and so it's not just pouring all back down into the underchasm. Right. So. I like it. I, I, I can deal with it. <laughs> no, no, I meant I like your explanation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that one. <laughs> so... So yeah, but yeah, some big things changing. Um, I kind of want there to be a sequel starring Malik and the goat. Oh, the goat! <laughs> the goat. I thought the goat uh, was awesome. Like at first, yeah. it was really corny, and then it turned out to be kind of awesome. Yeah. It was like a name like Peox or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Well, what's really funny is um, reading about the goat, but also knowing about Goat Simulator. <laughs> which is a video game in which you're this goat and you it, it's just off the wall um and crazy like I, I hate using that term but yeah uh you, you play a goat but you can like pull people around with your tongue uh there are like parts where you can do rituals and then become a demon goat so i just imagine this goat in that world and it was great i've seen videos of goats in the and i just said well well that's just plain 
silliness all it is around. Silliness. Which is good. It's good to have silliness in the games. Uh, but yes, for, for for a while, honestly, I when I was reading the goat and what he was doing and all that, I said, I was like, is he going to pull that the, the goat's going to be the sacrifice? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that did occur to me briefly once because you know that was very common, right? In um, in the Torah, the Old Testament, all that, right? That was a com- <laughs> a goat like that would have been a common form of sacrifice, in, sacrifice. In, in religion. Yeah, oh, well, but basically. Mostly because also it was like, okay, so since we, in the second half, they were introducing all these forced relationships with Joel, so what, are we going to have a forced relationship between between Joel and the goat? I was like, okay, are we going to do that? (laughs) Nope, they did, okay. (laughs) So, so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, those are the two characters that were the most interesting to me. Those are the two characters I wanted to know more about. I'm, I am a little. I am a little sad to see all of the Earth modes gone. Like I, you don't want to go over the top, right? Because it it becomes a little I don't know anime ish oh. or whatever to have all these Earth modes all over the place. But I thought it was kind of a neat idea to, to use every now and then. The idea that all of them have fallen over the last several years is is a little sad to me. But yeah, uh, you could possibly introduce a powerful wizard who's using his magic to maintain one just sure. because he likes them. Yeah. I mean, so there's one left. This one guy just won't let it drop. I yeah. mean, you, you kind of almost had one here, right? That the tower at the end yeah. was on an earth mode that had fallen, but all the bridges were still attached. And so the right. bridges were holding it up over the chasm yeah. until, you know, the chasm is filled up. Yeah. Theoretically, that earth mode is still there. It's just, you know... <laughs> It's not. Uh, yeah, it's just it's not, surrounded by dirt. Yeah. All right. Have we expen- expanded our or expended our conversation now? Sounds like it. As nobody so, responds. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something to say. I don't know. So if you Ooh. like, um, it's almost a travel log sort of adventure, right? I feel like there were several instances where we had encounters and things just simply for the sake of encountering something new and for showing, hey, look, the world is dangerous. You know, I don't know that it advanced them as people that much or whatever. Um, so it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of a travelogue um, dealing heavily with the gods of the realms, um, but never quite made the emotional connection to any of us. Is that sort of a, an assessment? That sounds pretty much a good assessment. I think so. I feel bad. I tried. Yeah. And again, it's not a bad book. It wasn't a bad yeah. story. Right? It it sort of fits it hits about in the middle of my, my sundering. Yeah. If I had to rank all my sundering yeah. books, this would this would be somewhere in the middle. I rate it from one to ten, I would probably give it a five point five. Okay. It's it's like I said, it's not a bad book, it's not a great book, it's mm-hmm. average. If I was rating it on Netflix, I think it'd be a three star. So there. That's out of five, right? Yes. Okay. Just in case somebody doesn't have Netflix. Right. Yep. I suppose. All right. I think we're done. Great. Uh, so that's our discussion. Now let's chat with Troy Denning, the author of the book. Take it away, Jeff. And we are here now with Troy Denning, author of The Sentinel. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Very good. So, uh, so first question that I typically like to ask in book clubs um, is uh, what is the Sentinel about uh, being as concrete or esoteric as you want to be sort of, what is this story? 
it's about a person who's lost his faith finding it again. Is that concise enough? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, so how does this story um, fit into the larger event of the Sundering? Well, uh, the Sundering, we, we, when we talk about the Sundering as a whole, we, we like to compare it to World War II, and then we like to compare each book to the story of what happened in a particular campaign. So, you know, like Bob might have might have been telling, um, since he was the first person to, to write about the Sundering, might have been tell, talking about the invasion of, of Poland, you know, and then, and then um, Paul might have been talking about the African campaign. And so each, if you look at each book, it's, it's not continuing the story of any set of particular characters, but it's continuing the story of the event itself mm-hmm. and from a different perspective and a different location um, through the eyes of different characters. And um, so the, the, the Sentinel is the penultimate book which is the book that kind of leads you up to the final climax, but isn't the final climax. It's just, you know, setting everything up. All the pieces are in place. And then Ed, I had to turn it over to Ed, Ed's capable hands and um, let him kind of finish the whole Sundering campaign, which is only appropriate since uh, he is, after all, the founder of the Forgotten Realms. So... The, and so this one fits in, you know, sometime after the Reaver. You make reference in the book to some of the events of the Reaver, um, like the seas rising again and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's correct. You know, and the Reaver did did a really clear and nice job of sort of laying out here are some changes that are happening in the realms. You know, this god has returned. This geography is different. These are some things that happen. So, what changes happen in the Sentinel in the realms? What What does this book expose us to that tells us about the new realms? Well. Basically, the Sentinel occurs at a point when um, the Sundering is, is almost complete, so that the, the two realms are, you know, Abir and Tor- Torel, are just about separated. And there's a, a lot of jockeying for position going on at that point between the, the gods as they try to secure their um, various portfolios. And this is the story of one of the biggest moves that is occurring at that point, which is Shar's attempt um, to basically unleash the Shadowfell over the entire over the entire world, and it's the the story of how a couple of people who really weren't major players in the in the event so far get drawn into the story. And make a big, huge difference, and, and in fact, spoil Shar's plan, um, so that as the Sundering completes itself, uh, Ed's you know onto the final climax of, of the whole story, and, and, and shows how the whole thing shakes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is it in a kind of an abstract sense. In a more concrete sense, basically, what happens is Helm comes back. Um, because Cleef, the hero, the male hero of the, of the Sundering, or of the Sentinel, um, has been clinging to the faith in a dead god for years and years. Um, you know, his, his whole family's been clinging to the faith in this dead god for three generations without really realizing that their faith is what's keeping this, this spark of this god 
alive. And in the Sentinel, his faith ignites that spark and brings Helm back. And um, it's a similar story for Arietta, in though, but it's a much more personal story in that she has been clinging to the faith in what the duties of a noble ought to be, um, you know, in serving the, the the people of the realm. And she goes through a crisis where she thinks, oh, I really am not all I thought I am. And then through coming to that realization becomes all that she thought she was. Um, and in fact, becomes a chosen of CMR. And finally, the biggest concrete thing that happens to the world is, is that, uh, the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name, that big hole in the ground. The endercasm. Yeah, the endercasm um, is finally filled in, uh, as that was one of the kind of plot points that the story group set up as one of the things that they wanted to undo about what had been done before. Um, they wanted to get rid of the endercasm and fill it back in and have uh, uh, Torrell basically, you know, return to normal in, in at least that area of the world. And so that's one of the physical things that happens. All right. Now you've touched on three other things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> right. uh, let's start with the one you just finished on the undercasm filling up. Um, mm -hmm. How exactly did that happen? Like in the story, there was a big chasm. This ritual happened or, or other ritual was failed or whatever. And then, you know, flash of light. And now the undercasm was full. Okay. Um... <laughs> what happened? <laughs> What filled the undergasm? Well, well, basically, you know, the, part of the one of the driving motivations of the story is Char's attempt to force Grumbar mm -hmm. to depart Torel with all of the other um, para elementals. I'm, I'm blanking on what primordials. The heck he, primordials, yeah. I'm with all of the other primordials, and um, of course, if he does that. That will make it a lot easier for Shar to, you know, exert her her um, influence of the of the Shadowville over the rest of the world. So what happens is, as with all things dealing with gods, you have something occurring on a symbolic level that becomes translated into a physical level, and the symbolic level is is that the heroes manage to. Convince Shar or convince Grumbar to stick with Torel mm -hmm. um, because of his love um, for um, oh now Luthic yeah Luthic because <laughs> I'm here I am blank and terribly <laughs> you, you wouldn't think I wrote this book <laughs> um, but anyway so he's he's you know he's become disheartened in love uh, through Shar's manipulations and the hero's job is basically to to show Grumbar that, yeah, you know, Luthic really does love him and that he really does love Luthic. And it's that power of the love that, you know, keeps him here and binds him to the world. And by doing that, um, you know, they bind the earth element back to to the world. And that's the symbolic... And then it fills, fills with earth. Yeah, and, and that's his, his... As a result of that symbolic... Um, climax in that symbolic decision, you know, the, the physical manifestation of that is the undercasm fills with earth. Right on. Uh, so. so my, my second, um, 
question that came up uh, as you answered before. Uh, you talked about how Cleef's family was sort of the, the spark that kept Helm in existence uh-huh. as the, the family that sort of held on to that faith. Um, although there is another series uh, of books, uh, Eric's got to be a Shadowbane series that dealt with um, a, a devotee of, of Helm. And he was sort of um, talking or hinting at some point of that, that, Helm never actually died, but it emerged with Tyr, and there was a, a group of, of worshippers that worshipped in that way. Uh, did that play into sort of the, the storyline as you considered it, or, or is that something that you hadn't really looked at before? Um, basically, what happened at that point was we had our, our meeting, and we talked about the, you know, the, the meeting where we were talking mm-hmm. about the plot points of the Sundering. And we talked about the various characters that um, we each might be developing. And sometime during that that uh, meeting, I threw out the idea of an embittered paladin. And we all kind of fell in love with it. And we developed it and said, okay, yeah, we'll have this cleave thing. And then for some reason, nobody mentioned to me, because I hadn't been keeping up with the realms reading at that point, Nobody had mentioned to me that actually there already was an embittered paladin <laughs> until, you know, Eric Scott Dubai, when we announced what was going on, um, said, hey, wait a minute, how is this going to fit in with, with my, my guy? So Eric and I had a discussion, and I did a little bit of research and realized that really there are two different kinds of paladins. Mm-hmm. You know, Eric's guy is much more of a Dark Knight kind of guy, yeah. and my guy is, is not nearly that competent. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt very comfortable in saying, you know, look, Cleef isn't the only guy who might have been embittered or lost, lost his way. And, and he, this is his reaction to, to having that loss of faith go on. Whereas um, Eric's guy has, has a much different reaction. Um, so in terms of the characters, which is my primary area of interest, sure. um, I felt that there was quite a bit of difference and I wasn't worried about having two characters that were embittered paladins um, in, in the Forgotten Realms. It's, you know, um, you know, for instance, if you look at, um, take a, for comparisons, you know, Star Wars, Darth Vader, as it turns out, wasn't the only Sith Lord. Um, so, it, it, you know, you can, there's room for more than one sure. of that kind of character in the, in the, in the world. Sure. Um, in terms of him merging with Tyr, I think they just decided that that really wasn't what what happened to Helm. Yeah. Although we never did, we, I mean, we still haven't really gotten the story about what happened with Helm, you know, definitively and, and whatever. So that, I suppose that story could still be told at some point. Um, I suppose it could. I think I implied, again, on a symbolic level, which is mm-hmm. where, I, where I tend to live, um, that Helm had really been kind of trapped in the sword watcher for all those years. And that that's where his spite Spark of life had been residing. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, that is now, a, and I'm gonna. My, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and that is, in my view, at least, what happened to Helm since um, they didn't go with uh, combining with tier kind of thing. Okay. Uh, and then the other thing that you sort of, uh, I think you kind of answered this question, although we hadn't asked it yet, and I just want to confirm, Arietta was not chosen at the start of the book, but became chosen later on. Right. Arietta um, was a lot of fun for me because she's a spoiled um, 
rich girl who who really wants to do the right thing in life, but she has never faced any challenges that give her an idea of what is required to do the right thing in life. And so she starts the book just assuming, well, naturally, I'm the chosen of CMR because, you know, the priest who my father was buying off told me I was. Mm-hmm. And through the events of the book, she comes, goes through a crisis where she realizes, you know, I don't have, I'm not the chosen. I'm, you know, I've, I've been fooling myself. And she, she becomes very bitter. But at the same time, despite that bitterness, um, still finds the strength inside herself to do the right thing and to try to, to do what is she thinks that, that she would have done had she been chosen a CMR. And I, think, I, th- I think we had two different interpretations there of, of what co- could have been going on, that either she she was fooling herself and she thought that she was chosen, but she wasn't, and then later became chosen, um, or she was chosen all along and as a chosen had a crisis of faith as a result of the influence of Malik. And, and it, Malik sort of agreeing with my theory that she wasn't chosen the whole time uh, was actually a big blow against my theory because Malik's a liar, right? So I figured, well, if Malik said that's what's going on, then maybe it's not what's going on. Yeah. No, no, but the the first is right, and if that was your theory, that's that's certainly what I intended. Is is that so? Take that, Tracy. But wasn't. <laughs> so so I'm I'm sorry that um, to whoever lost that argument. <laughs> I hope you bet on it. Um, All right, but, I've, uh, I've asked a lot of questions now, so I'll let Tracy ask something. Oh, it's yeah. okay. You go ahead. But, uh, well, you know, the, the, the nice thing about dealing with the gods and with the symbolic elements, um, which you have to deal with any time you do deal with the gods, is, is that there's subject to many, many different interpretations, and the author's isn't always the correct one. Sure. So. Uh, well, I guess another question we had, just because we were discussing it, and it, it may seem like a really off-the-wall question. Uh, Joelle, Emmeline, <laughs> so... Her description reminds me a lot of a of a song called Jolene. <laughs> yeah, by Olivia Newton John. I remember that version of it very well, at least. Okay, is there any influence there? Um, I wouldn't say that there's any conscious influence, but when I was eighteen, I probably listened to that song a thousand times. Right. So, yeah. So there there may have been some unconscious influence. <laughs> Yeah, it's just because when I was reading it, um, particularly when they got to the part where they're starting to fight over Cleef, yeah, um, and then with the the red hair and everything else, because uh, it's flaming locks of auburn hair, yeah, yeah, I was just like, oh my god, I wonder. So yeah, yeah. well, I, I I do too. I think that you might be onto something there. <laughs> yeah, Joelle, Jolene, you know, it's it's, well, it's, it's a like parallel. <laughs> well, and I think her full name, if but I could be wrong, was Joelle Emmeline. That's correct. So if you combine them, sort of mash them up, it becomes Jolene. Or, yeah, <laughs> Jolene, right? Exactly. I wonder where that came from. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a keen observation. Okay, cool. And then the other thing I was kind of wondering about throughout the book that honestly had me a little confused is because, like, gender comes up a few times in the book. Like, you have Arietta's mother arguing with her, saying, you know, I thought the gods gave me a daughter. Because mm-hmm. uh, she was trying to make her uh, be more girly, basically. And then yep. it just and it just comes up multiple times. So on one hand, like, the overall outward conversations are often about how she's not being uh, 
girly or womanly enough. But then the underlying thing is you have the inversion of the normal. She and uh, Joelle kind of protect Cleef while he's overly tired and needs the rest. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if that was like a conscious thing and what was going on there with that. Well, I think one of the things that I wanted to do when I realized I was going to be using uh, the chosen of uh, Sune was to, um, yeah, I'm a flaming liberal. So I wanted to deal with the idea that love takes a lot of different forms. And Joelle, you know, she's all about love, but she's also all about freedom. And so, you know, she loves who she loves and she's, she loves him with her whole heart. She even loves Malik and she tells him this. Um, although not quite in the way that Malik wants, because to Malik being, um, you know, the chosen of Siri, love is actually about ownership. And right. I, I wanted to, to play with that, that theme a little bit. And so Joelle, who is pure love, is also pure freedom. You know, she loves who she loves and she, she feels perfectly free to love more than one person at a time. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Cleef uh, is all about duty, and you know, love has to take the whole back seat to it. And uh, Arietta is just about finding herself, and it's only through her affair with Joelle that she really kind of finds the freedom to become who she is in her own right. And and um, only after she she, you know loses everything and says, well, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm free to become, to be who I want to be. That's when she becomes a chosen Asiomar. And I think that that's um, a theme that, that I'd like to stress a lot in writing is, is that you have to live a natural life before you can live a full life. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, talk a little bit about the goat. <laughs> the goat yeah. the goat yeah. was a wall bound who was taken out of the wall and put into the goat but at the same time there were moments when i thought the goat was like an avatar of helm himself uh-huh um so, so what's the deal with the goat <laughs> you know the, the thing about the gods is is that you know they're all it's all symbolism and it's all very loose so you can be one thing at one moment and still be something else at the same time and there's some of that going on with the goat. Um, and I don't want to... Um, the, next want to no, the next novel is going to be about the goat, and you don't want to spoil it, right? Well, the, 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 <laughs> yeah, the goat is not done. You haven't heard the last of the goat. Excellent. And, and you know, his reveal is going to be a very slow reveal, but it's, it's going to be kind of an important one. Interesting. So, so there's, the goat is, um, goat is definitely a wall-bound. Goat is definitely a goat on one level, but he's also definitely much more on another level and probably not what anybody expects. Hmm. And, and you won't find that out for another one or two books. So I hope that teases you enough. Which answers one of my other questions about are there any plans going forward to explore more of these characters? So I guess at least another couple of books, huh? Yeah, I've... I've I have, um, in my mind at least, I have two board books outlined, and I 
certainly expect that they will be published, um, written and published. Um, so, you know, without nailing any um, schedules down or nailing, uh, obligating watching any, any of my, my expectations. But yeah, there's, there's more story there and more story that I hope and believe I'll be able to tell. Now, some of the, one of the things we've noticed in some of the other Sundering books that comes out of this uh, really great sort of um, editorial conversation that I think you guys have had as authors mm-hmm. uh, is that there are hints in some books about things that happened in previous books. And then there's also hints about things coming up in future books, including like straight up cameos, right? Like Stead from uh, The Reaver was in The Adversary and, and things like that. So is there any of that sort of stuff going on in here that, that we maybe should should you know be taking note of? I mean, some of it we can tell, right? That you talk about the, the water levels rising and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Then there's other things that, you know, I mean, we don't know, right? Because we haven't read The Herald yet. Right. Well, um, I think going forward, because of the, the location of this book, most of that stuff is looking backward. You know, um, for instance, the, the captain of the ship that carries um, Cleef and, and uh, Arietta across the sea is a, is a character from the Reaver. Um, oh. I did not yeah. pick up on that. That's cool. Yeah, he is. And um, is that the, was, was, that the, was that the, was it a gnome? Yeah, the gnome. Yeah, yeah. cool. I can't even remember his name. Off I the top. can't either, but I, I get, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, but he was he was a character from um, the Reaver, which is one reason that I I didn't kill him when the boat sank um, is because you know you don't really want to kill your fellow writers. Character, character, sure. Yeah, um, and you um, even gave him a new boat. Yeah, and I gave him a new boat, a better boat. Yeah, yeah, much better boat. <laughs> but uh, well, well, that that actually remains to be seen because the last time we see the gnome That's is. True. Yeah, he's he's hiking off all pissed off. So we we don't know for sure that he's going to get the boat, but but you know everybody else is a is a man of their word. So we can assume that if he's actually able to make it there, he'll he'll get it. Um, there was also uh, another connection that I'm going back to thinking of. But oh, Arietta, um, at one point her mother was had expected her to be. Um, uh, engaged to oh, the prince from Aaron's books, and his name is slipping my my mind. Oh, Ren, 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 yeah, Ren. She she had expected him, her, to be, Arietta, to be engaged to Ren, and considered a great failing of Arietta's powers of charm that she wasn't. Huh. But you know, of course, we know from Air, from Aaron's books um, that he's otherwise lot, occupied. Yeah, he's otherwise <laughs> occupied. So, so there's a couple of little connections like that uh-huh. that we intentionally, you know, I can remember the meeting we had. Um, it was a story meeting we held down in Indianapolis um, during a Gen Con, hmm. uh, you know, because anytime you have all the authors in one place on a project like this, you tend to try to make time to have a story meeting. And sure. we did that in Indianapolis. And that was the point where we started to plot out connections like this and you know, I mean, I'm talking about the connections between my book and Aaron's and, and Richard Lee Byers, um, because those are, the, those are the ones that I remember. But there were connections, you know, like that between Ed's book and, and Paul's. Or, well, and, and you, there's a lot of connections between yours and Paul's as well. Uh, yeah. They, both, oh, took, yeah. they do, both took place in similar locations, and you use some similar villains and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of that, um, you know, goes back to to a couple of different things. I mean, that that was more of an organic connection. You know, that like the the connection between the gnome and uh, Ren. Those are connections that we said, okay, we want to look for ways to tie this in and make it seem like it's all part of the same world. And so we said, well, I, we could do this, right? Mm-hmm. But with Paul and I, that connection was a lot more organic because our stories concerned, you know, Shar's plan. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, um, you know, we're really, that's one of the rare exceptions where Paul's talking about what's going on with Shar's plan early, and I'm talking about what's going on with Shar's plan late. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the reason that though, that connection is a lot more organic. And also, you know, it's the fact that, you know, I wrote Return to the Arch Wizards, and then Paul wrote, um, you know, the name of his series that followed that. Uh, I've only read his Erebus Kale stuff. Yeah, well, it's the Erebus Kale. Oh, okay. The, yeah. the Twilight War? Yeah, the Twilight Wars, right, so... You know, all of that, you know, all the Milligant, the 12 Princes of Shade and everything were introduced um, mm-hmm. in the Return of the Archwizard series. And then Paul took those guys and ran with them in the Twilight War. And uh, so, we've, you know, we've kind of been playing with the same characters for, oh, geez, since 1990s or for so. For a while, yeah. Yeah, for a while. Um, so there was a lot more connection just organically between between those stories. Um and probably, oddly enough, that those, you know, the second and the fifth book are probably tied more closely together than any other two books in the Sundry. Well, and it's interesting because, like, some of the books are sort of off in their own areas and, and don't naturally sort of interact a lot, right? Uh, the Reaver is sort of in its own geographic area. Um, the Companions sort of deals with its own geographic areas, uh, and they don't really cross over, but... but um, the Godborn, the Sentinel, um, all, are both Cormier based. Uh, the adversary at least has some connections back to Cormier, um, mm-hmm. and and the, I don't know where the Herald's at, but I know prior to the Herald, the Elminster story has sort of been centered around Cormier as well. So I'm, I can only imagine that that took some careful coordination. Um, you know, it did, but once again, you know, Cormier's a, a fairly large place. And, you know, if you, I'm just going to say off the top of my head, imagine it's the size of Minnesota mm-hmm. and you have millions of people living there. So even though you want to know basically what's happening in Minnesota at the, at the same time and you want to have your story reflect that, you don't have to tell the same story because you've got so many different characters and so many geographical sub areas what's happening in marshall may not affect what's happening affect what's happening in saint paul yeah exactly exactly and, and you're also divided by time as well because because each story seems to advance the timeline in at least a few years if not more yeah i think the total timeline of sundering is 10 years if i'm remembering right okay it's either five years or 10 years we went back and forth um between that so there's a, there's a couple of years you know, I mean, between Paul's book and my ebook, I think about two years have passed. Between the adversary and my book, more than a year. And I, I think the Sentinel actually followed a few months after the Reaver. Okay. And I believe the, um, Ed's book 
the Herald will follow fairly shortly after the Sentinel. Okay. Tracy, do you have any more questions before we ask our wrap-up question? I think I'm fine. All right. Then I guess, uh, is there just anything else that you th- think people should know uh, about the Sentinel or, or anything else that you're working on or that where they should check things out or whatever? But, you know, what, one last message you want to send out to the listeners. Um, well, it's been great fun returning to the Forgotten Realms, and I've um, been very grateful to have such a warm reception. And I encourage people to get in touch with me on Facebook, just friend me. Troy Denning on Facebook. Um, I'm the author, obviously. You'll know who I am. <laughs> and um, I still have room for plenty of friend requests, and that's basically how I keep people informed of, you know, my convention appearances or, uh, you know, what's going on in, in my writing world at the time. Speaking so, of convention appearances, Gen Con? I don't believe I'm going to ah. Gen Con. No, yeah, it's... it's uh, they finish up the sundering and they they just stop bringing you back, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I was kind of expecting that that we would we would come down there to have a big you know it's done kind of thing, but but you know the world moves on and you you got to keep keep uh, you know pumping your bicycle as fast as you can yeah. to keep up. I suppose. So, yeah. so at this time, I'm I'm not planning on being on Gen Con, but never say never. It could happen. Okay. All right. Well, then I think uh, those are the questions we have for you for tonight. All right. Well, thanks very much for having me, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Yep. It was a pleasure. And that's the end of this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. We want to thank Eric M. Paquette for joining us, who is Eric M. Pack, P-A-Q, on Twitter, right? That is correct. All right. And we also want to thank our listeners, you guys out there, for using our affiliate links over at Amazon and uh, D&D Classics. If you go to thetomeshow.com and click on one of the banners there, um, you get the exact same shopping experience, but it drops a little cookie on your browser uh, that lets them know where you came from, and we get a little bit of credit. So just a, a little taste, a little percentage. And I, and I spread that out, by the way. Um, I have all of our, our producers on different shows on the, on the network, on whatever, uh, and I try to spread it out so everybody gets a little something over the year. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E, 919-BIZ-TOME. And if you want to find show notes or other great Tome Show shows, you can head over to thetomeshow.com. That is our thoughts on The Sentinel. Remember, over the next few months, we will conclude The Sundering by reading all of The Herald by Ed Greenwood. Uh, finishing up at Gen Con in August. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.